We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Our world is enchanted. Everything in creation, from the exploding cosmos to the whirling, dancing, utterly mysterious quantum particles, everything is haunted by God. God is lurking everywhere. Our houses, our passionate unions, our family parties, our eating, our working, our world is charged not by just a reminder of God, but by God's actual presence. Someone once put it this way. The God of creation traffics in ashes and dust, blood and bodies, fish and bread. All of this cosmos was made by God in order to make himself known. Everything that exists in this world is a gift that God has given to humans. And he fills it with his presence so that whatever we're interacting with, we have the opportunity for that to be an intimate point of communion with the creator. Now, that's why Elizabeth Barrett Browning could write, Earth is crammed with heaven. And every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. See, that's what she's getting at. Now, this is a basic insight of Scripture that God reveals himself, not knowledge about himself, but his actual self. He reveals himself through the things he's created. He speaks to us through material things. He comes to us through these things. Now, this is a fundamental given in Scripture. And it challenges our secular modern culture in two big ways. One, it challenges supernaturalism on the one hand. And on the other hand, it challenges what we would call naturalism. Now, this is what I mean. The supernaturalist. This is the person who is so religious, they operate as if God would not traffic in the impurities of material things. And so they're constantly escaping into some sort of spiritualized, mysticized experience with God. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the naturalist. This is the person who's been deeply schooled in our kind of scientific worldview and assumes that What is material and what is physical is nothing but material or physical. Now, the problem with both of these extremes, the religious kind of supernaturalist and the scientific kind of naturalist, the problem with both of these is they have both evacuated the world of God's presence. The world of sight and smell and blood and tissue and everyday life. They both evacuated it. One has said this world is nothing but natural. The other has said God wouldn't condescend into this kind of stuff. In other words, for both of these, spirituality becomes a superstructure that's built on top of 
the secular or the natural or the everyday life. But when the first chapter of the Bible specifically shows us God pronouncing seven times what? It is good. It is good. And on the seventh time, he looked at everything he had made. And what did he say? It is very good. Now, what is going on there? What he's doing is he's saying, my creation is a sign of my presence. It's a means of communion between you and me. That the physical, material stuff of creation is the way that God meets us and gives himself to us and gets a hold of us. In other words, the world is always more than just nature. It is charged with the presence, not just a reminder of God, but the very presence of the creator of the universe. This is what Paul was getting at in the New Testament. The apostle Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. He's saying there is no place in this world you can go in which you are not encountering the creator. Gerard Manley Hopkins captures this beautifully in a poem, God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And where's man's smudge and shares man's smell? The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last light of the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast with ah, bright wings. See, that's what he's doing. He's meditating on that verse in Genesis 1 where it says, the spirit broods over creation. Now, what I've just done in theological terms is laid out for you what's called a sacramental view of life. The idea that all of life has the power to disclose God. Okay? And this is the context that is critical for understanding the relationship of worship to evangelism. And if you don't have that perspective on life, worship and evangelism will spin off into two different locations. it's, It's the context we as a church must have if we're going to be serious about this fifth ministry front. We've been working our way through the ministry fronts, faith and work, Community formation, mercy and justice, church planting, and the last one, worship and evangelism. Now, the reason we deliberately jam them together is because if they don't sit with one another in this perspective of life, then they're going to spin off into an unhelpful direction. Ultimately, we'll bow down to our culture, to a secularized view of life. Now, let me kind of dig into this a little bit. If there's a Bible near you, find Psalm chapter 95. It's, it's pretty much in the dead center 
Um, so an easy way to find the Psalms is you just put your thumbs together right in the middle and, and well, got me Isaiah, but which means I turned to the left. Psalm number 95. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. God's not taking names or anything. Psalm 95. This is what Sandy read to us. What an incredible psalm. Look what verse 1 says. Oh, come. Look at verse 2. Let us come. Look at verse 6. Oh, come. Now, what I want you to see is that worship always begins with an invitation. That's that word, come. It's, it's somebody, right, saying, it's me saying, friend, come to my house, right? It's an invitation. Oh, come, let us come. Oh, come. It is an invitation for you to go from where you are to another place. Now, public church worship is best understood as a journey. And if you can kind of hold that metaphor in your mind as you think about what we do on Sunday nights, it will make sense of a lot of this. A few minutes ago, we were each at our home, right? Or, or at the country club or out to eat or doing homework or skiing or swimming or I don't know, whatever you were doing, watching TV, relaxing. Then in a sudden flourish, right? <laughs> Holy cow, look what time it is. We're pulled from our homework and our hobby and our chores and we get ourselves together and we head to the door to get in the car and moms and dads are wrestling children to make them presentable. You can't go naked, not this time. <laughs> and some couples are probably getting in arguments on the way here and, and here we are. Singles and families and toddlers and students and young adults and grandparents, we were all somewhere else just a few minutes ago doing our own individual thing. But then, whether you know this or not, we were summoned. Then we were all summoned. Whenever a church gathers for worship, it is because the Creator has summoned a people to a place, to do a thing together. This is what the word church literally means. Uh, the word church is the English of a Greek word, ecclesia. And the first Christians spoke Greek. And when they were looking around for a word to describe who they were, they picked this word, ecclesia. And they picked it deliberately. They were deliberately making a point. It, it, it means called out. And they were making this point that their gathering on Sunday was not a voluntary society of a group of people who were individuals chiefly concerned to share or to build community or, or to enjoy fellowship or to have moral instruction for their, for their children. They picked this word because they were making the point that they had been called out from this world, from their homes, some of them, right, were there without their spouse, without their children, without their grandparents. They, we are called from this world, from our homes, from our families, and we are called to be transformed in this action that we do together tonight into a church. You see, it is simply not right to think of this thing we do as simply 
an addition to the, to your life, a religious activity that we add on to our weekend so that we can become a better person or so that we can act more Christianly or discover peace or sort out all the crazy muckety-muck of our life. Here we are, week after week, just like it's happened around the globe for millennia after millennia, week after week, people from all cultures, all walks of life, are gathered out of the ordinary activities of their daily life, out of this world into... Now look again at Psalm 95. Look at that verse. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into what? His presence. Now, the first point I was trying to make is that the best way to conceive of public worship with the church on Sunday is as a journey, but not just an abstract metaphorical journey, a very real journey into the dimension of God's kingdom. That's what's going on here, whether we know it or not. When we gather to worship as a church, it's not just an emotional journey. We're actually going somewhere. It's not just psychological. We are entering God's dimension. The Bible calls this heaven. Remember, we've talked about this before. It's a mind trip for secularists, modernists, Americans. But remember, for the Jewish people of the Old Testament and for the Christians of the New Testament, when it came to heaven and earth, they weren't talking about geography. Heaven and earth are not two different locations in the universe. Earth here and heaven some far off place out past Pluto. You know, you're going to fly there like Casper when you die. According to the culture that produced the Bible, heaven and earth are two different dimensions of the same reality. They're overlapping. They're interlocking. Heaven is the dimension of God's kingdom. That's what we pray. Thy kingdom come here on earth. We're not asking God to send it like the mothership from way out there. We're asking his kingdom to break through. So the journey of worship, it's something like an ascension into another dimension. Not another location. It's, it's, it's an ascension into a fourth dimension. The dimension of God's kingdom. Do you remember how our worship service began tonight? It, it began with the same words it always begins with. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be what? The Episcopalians know, right? Come on, Sandy. Blessed be what? His kingdom, Episcopalians, not just Episcopalians, Eastern Orthodox, Catholics, the majority of churches in the world that worship say that exact phrase or some version of it when they start their worship service. You know why? We're naming our destination. We're saying we've come here for a place, for a journey, for a destination, and we're naming it. The journey of worship is the journey into God's kingdom. This is where we're going, not merely symbolically. In other words, church isn't so much about what you learn. It's about much more important things than that. To bless the kingdom in the language of the Bible is to declare our goal. It's the end of all of our desires. 
To bless the kingdom is to say it's the end of all of my interests. It's the end of this hungering, thirsting heart. It's the goal of my whole life. It is that which is of supreme value. That's what we're saying. Even if we don't know we're saying it, we're saying that. Now, remember I began the message with this poem from Browning. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God. The whole of creation is sacred. God is present in some fashion in all of the objects and events of ordinary life. Now, you could use this to marginalize the church, couldn't you? I mean, you could follow this argument, couldn't you? To say, well, I don't need to go to church because God is golf course hunting, whatever it is for you, right? Shopping, (laughs) pick on both genders. Now, if you say every common bush is a fire with God, then everything I've just said about public worship in a church being an ascension into God's dimension, then all of that can be applied everywhere. All of this talk about the goodness of creation could lead to a kind of dissemination of the spirit into the world in such a way that that the church is just leveled out as one particular place. It's nothing special. If all the world is haunted by God, God is lurking everywhere. Who needs the church? Here's the catch. Although all of God's creation is crammed, jam-packed with God's presence. Not all of God's creation is packed with God's presence in the same way. The church's worship, it's... A hot spot. Okay? It's a hot spot where God's formative, illuminating presence is particularly concentrated. Scripture presents both of these ideas that every bush is a flame, yes, but God in His power has picked some bushes to burn brighter, more intense than others. While the Spirit inhabits all of creation in a very important sense, The Spirit of God is intensified in certain places, in certain things, and in certain actions. This intensity is is, um, exemplified in in the words Jesus used when he inaugurated the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Remember what he said? This, talking about the bread, this is my body. Now, Jesus didn't look around the room and look out the window and abstractly announce, Behold, all the goodness of creation. Look at creation. Remember me. Believe in me. These are gifts of God for the people of God. Now, he could have said that, and that is true. But creation is different than what we're doing right now. Jesus was taking up communion, the Eucharist. And and he was in doing it with a special sense of his presence. And in an intensity of his presence. In this way, Jesus was saying, hey, I'm ordaining certain hot spots within my good creation, certain practices. Now, That is the key to 
to keeping the relationship of worship and evangelism straight. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to our second reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look down at verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters. Now, let, let's stop right there. Paul, the author of this letter to the church in the city of Corinth, he's assuming that every congregation is spiritually diverse. That there are believers and unbelievers. There are mature Christians and baby Christians. People who are convinced and people who just don't even understand, but they're open. And what he's dealing with is the issue of speaking in tongues during a worship service of spiritual diversity. Go back to verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Now, this church was getting in a big fight. Do we speak in tongues during the worship service? Does it make us really cool? Do we get to wear a badge? I speak in tongues. That makes me better than you. They were doing all of this kind of stuff. And Paul is saying, hey, look, this is an obvious issue. There are some things that make unbelievers think you're bonkers. They think you're crazy. And tongues is one of them. Now, tonight is not about speaking in tongues and other charismatic gifts. I, I believe in that. I'm not against that. I'm not saying that. And Paul's not saying that. In fact, in here he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. He's talking about the role of tongues in public worship. And, that, and what we're focusing on tonight is this relationship of worship and evangelism. So what I'm trying to show you is that the public weekly Sunday worship of a church is the journey into the dimension of God's kingdom and I want you to see that in 1 Corinthians 14, how this sheds tremendous light on the relationship of evangelism. And it's this. The best possible way to hear the gospel is to hear it embodied in the worship of a worshiping community. If you put together these two things that every bush is aflame. But there's a particular hot spot when the people of God are called out of their ordinary life into a ritual in which they actually ascend into the fourth dimension of God's kingdom presence. Then it makes sense what Paul is saying here. Look in verse 24. If all prophesy and an unbeliever, he's talking about a worship service or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. So falling on his face, he will worship God and declare what? God is really among you. Holy cow. I've been to nature. I've been out there. But what happens here is hot. God is really among you. Now, that last word, you, it's plural. God is not. Yes, God is in me as an individual. And when I share my faith with my friend, God is there. But when we do this, God is really among us. Not symbolically among us. Not God is talked about by us and described by us. And not you've argued persuasively about God. Not God is imagined by us. But the real God is really here. The veil 
separating God's dimension and our dimension, overlapping, interlocking, when we do this divinely ordained thing, it thins out. God is really here. Now, for much of the 20th century, let's think about the approach to evangelism. For much of the 20th century, the dominant approach to evangelism was mass evangelism. Seen as familiar. An, a well-known evangelist comes to town and all the churches get together, right? And they cooperate and they, they um, invite their friends and especially their friends who are not sure about Christianity or hate Christianity or have questions or whatever. And, and they come to this big crusade and this evangelist shares the gospel and then he invites people to, to invite Jesus into their heart and people who respond are encouraged to then go home and to read their Bible and pray every day and join the local church of their choosing. Now, this kind of started petering out around the 60s or 70s. And so then we kind of came up with several different other forms. But another very popular form of evangelism that came around was seeker evangelism. Again, it's a familiar scene. You train Christian people to develop genuine friendships with with people who don't know Christ. You create a megachurch that doesn't even physically look like a church, and you invite them to this facility that has a place and a ministry for every single conceivable need, right? Youth, single, children, married people, married people with children, divorced people. You develop a seeker service in which the unchurched person can come and be anonymous and take their time in safety to consider the claim of Christ on their life. And when they become converted, you graduate them into involvement in a small group ministry or the midweek worship service where you go deeper and you help them to find their gifts and release them to work in the church. And this is a very successful model. But what I'm describing by locating evangelism within a sacramental view of the world is a very different thing. What I'm describing locates the focal point of evangelism in the community of people as they embody the gospel, especially in their worship. And what I'm saying is that in this kind of what I would argue is the biblical view, the church becomes the portal to the truth, not the evangelist, not the individual. The church becomes the basis of evangelism. The picture of the church at worship that we see in Psalm 95 and 1 Corinthians 14 is not so much evangelism by argument or proving or demonstration. It's evangelism by immersion. Immersion in a worshiping community. When we journey into the dimension of God's presence, this room, this place, These actions we do of singing and praying and scripture and sermon and Eucharist, these actions, this thing, this ritual becomes a hot spot for God's presence. Now, honestly, the results won't be nearly as fast. But the process is more in keeping with scripture and with the historical church. What we're seeing lately is a blip on the historical radar. When we do it this way, what what we'll find out is that a lot of our problems about 
getting people converted and then trying to see that they actually make it in the faith and all these kinds of problems they get solved. So here's what I'm saying. You have a genuine friendship with someone who's not a Christian. Your friend is genuinely interested in Christianity because of the way you live your life or some sort of experience. And so you invite that friend into the life of the church, into the social life, the actions of the church. And one day they come with you into a worship service. A worship service that's not completely oriented around them, but a place where they are immersed in God's kingdom. And at some point in that immersion, the Spirit of God gives them faith. And they internalize the kingdom. They make a personal commitment to Christ, to Savior and Lord. And they make this public. And this might happen in a direct moment within the worship service or with a friend. Or, or, or it might be kind of a gradual dawns on the person one day and they wake up and say, I'm a Christian. The best possible way to hear the gospel is to hear it embodied in the worship. Of a worshiping community. Because the church at worship. Is the hot spot. Of Christ's presence and action. In this world. Let's pray.